Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, Brenda Yescas interviews Dr. Gloria Arajona on a multimedia performance all about Frida Kahlo, coming to La Peña Cultural Center this week. Julieta Kusnid interviews Carolina Morales about Venezuela, and we also bring you a calendar of upcoming events. First, La Raza Chronicles would like to make an announcement about the possible teacher strike in Oakland. This is part of a statement put out by the Oakland Educators Association. Public education in Oakland is in a state of crisis. Classes are overcrowded, teachers can't afford to live where they work, and the Oakland Education Association has been without a contract for almost two years. The OEA teachers are fighting to defend public education by campaigning for a halt on school closures and a new contract that provides smaller class size and more student support and a living wage. Just recently, the Oakland Education Association authorized a strike with a 95% yes vote and an 84% voter turnout to win schools their students deserve. One of the key components of their campaign is Bread for Ed. In the case of a strike, Bread for Ed will provide meals at Solidarity Schools, food trucks at picket lines, and more. There are more than 37,000 students and more than 3,000 members of the Oakland Education Association in this fight to defend public schools in Oakland. The vast majority of these students are working class, people of color, and depend on free or reduced price lunches. Oakland schools are divided into seven clusters. For example, clusters six and seven, which represent large part of East Oakland, have more students and will then need more food. One way to help is to volunteer. Each cluster needs a volunteer base to help with receiving and distributing food donations leading up to and during the strike. If showing up to a site as a volunteer is not doable, the Oakland Education Association needs folks who are able to call local businesses, food banks, and churches and other organizations to build up a list of pledged donations. In addition, the Oakland Education Association needs monetary support. You can donate directly at donorbox.org slash breadfored, and the Oakland Education Association has stated that any remaining funds will be sent to their members' assistance fund. For more information, email oaklandbreadfored at gmail or visit the website at oaklandea.org. That's oaklandea.org. And now stay tuned. We bring you this week's Cronicas de la Raza. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm on the line with Carolina Morales. She's Venezolana. She's been doing a lot of work on the ground in Venezuela, but really leading a big part of the solidarity movement here in the Bay Area. We are talking about solidarity right now because this is a really crucial point in what's happening in Venezuela. And this is a point where people need to show up. But before we talk about what's happening now and recent developments from the last few weeks, can you take a step back and talk to us a little bit about U.S. intervention in Venezuela, thinking back, thinking about Chavez, thinking about before Maduro became president. Can you talk to us about the U.S.'s relationship with Venezuela? Yes. So Venezuela, in fact, before there was this backdoor meddling from the U.S. to Venezuela, there was actually a relationship that was beneficial to the United States between the Venezuelan government and the U.S. So basically, the neoliberal governments of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s all 
uh, basically gifted the country away from natural resources to corporations and a labor workforce that would bring economic benefit to the United States, but practically nothing to Venezuela. So then you fast forward to 1998 when Hugo Chavez gets elected um, on a platform of bringing change, bringing the country to to the center of kind of like any any and every deal, you start getting the United States being nervous about this. And in fact, in 2002, just a few years after his first election and, and actually a couple years after he started making big changes and talking about changing the constitution and actually providing more rights to a lot of marginalized communities is when there is the first U.S.-funded coup in Venezuela, and he actually gets kidnapped and taken to an island off the coast of the of Venezuela and in the Caribbean Sea. And there is a, a president that gets appointed basically by the U.S. government. He was big corporate man whose first action once he took power was to eliminate all constitutional rights in Venezuela. So not a democratic move at all. That coup only lasted three three days and it failed. The people of Venezuela and the military brought Chavez back. And Chavez very benevolently, very forgiving, didn't really bring big consequences to to the politicians that were involved in this. In fact, Leopoldo Lopez, Enrique Capriles, Maria Corina Machado, a lot of the big names that we hear today were uh, part of that coup. And you would never even think of that occurring here in the United States, right? That people involved in a, in a coup against the president of the U.S. would be not in jail and just allowed to continue running for office and speaking in media and just um, taking a lot of a lot of political space. Um, since then, a lo- we've found out a lot of different things. For example, thanks to WikiLeaks, we found out that in 2009, there was a um, classified document that they were able to uh, obtain that explained very, with a lot of detail, the plans the U.S. had to infiltrate grassroots organizing in Venezuela, especially in the barrios, in, you know, in the working class neighborhoods that detailed how internationally they were going to attack Chavez and his image. It's really, in a way, you know, shocking how much detail it had, but in other ways, we know that this is just a replica of um, the MO of the U.S. around Latin America. After Chavez passes away and Maduro gets elected to office, the violence and the aggressiveness connected to U.S. intervention escalates. Also, the international pressure and U.S. Uh, US-based sanctions also start to to escalate and the situation in Venezuela starts becoming tougher and tougher and tougher. Fast forward to now, we have John, uh, we have Bolton, we have Marco Rubio, we have Trump and Elio Abrams, which are, you know, true jewels of the extreme right wing in the United States. 
speaking to the media openly about intervening in Venezuela, about how this will benefit the U.S. economy and U.S. corporations. Those are exact words by Bolton, by Mike Pompeo as well. We have Trump talking about military intervention openly. And we have, you know, a convicted criminal, Elliot Abrams, um, who was pardoned by George Bush and who was part of uh, big wars in El Salvador and, and Guatemala, where he literally committed genocide. We have him as the repertoire of the United States within the, uh, with the Venezuelan situation. So I think we, we have a very clear image and vision of what the U.S. wants to do and what they've continued to advance towards in terms of Venezuela. And I think it is our responsibility on the left to pay attention and to not allow this, regardless of our opinions of the Venezuelan government and our criticism. This is a time to stop another war in Latin America, to stop more bloodshed, and to not have our tax money spent and wasted on intervention in one of our um, neighboring countries. Carolina, so I think that something that's been very complex and hard for people to get their head around is the really um, the information that people are receiving about what's happening. It's leaving people kind of confused. People talk about, well, the hunger people are facing in Venezuela or, um, you know, the level of despair and how this will help. And I'm just you know, shocked that I'm hearing people that in general wouldn't see themselves as interventionists. They're feeling confused around this issue. For you, what are some of the things that you hope that people understand about what's happening in Venezuela? With some of the revolutions, for example, um, the the Arab Spring that were fueled right by, by, by social media calls, I think that our, our minds in the U.S. in particular started thinking and shifting towards, oh, well, you know, social media is a tool for, for organizing and for getting true information, right? Given that we've all know on the left that CNN and ABC and MSNBC and all these big corporate uh, media channels don't really give us the full picture, right? We, we know that they're biased. We know what their voice uh, wants to say, right? And so when, when that happened and we have... Al Jazeera and AJ Plus and all these kind of social media-based news um, sites, we, we start thinking that they are grassroots and that they are alternative. And we forget to actually follow the money and really try to ask more critical questions, right? Knowing that international policy, it's much more difficult to, or international reality is much more difficult to understand than than our, our local realities, right? It's a different culture. In terms of things to understand about Venezuela, I mean, one of them is we have, and I mentioned it earlier, we have a, a history of um, having a lot of means, but not having a lot of um, equity and not having people who are the most working class people that are suffering the most benefit from from any of the wealth of the country, right? So we have a, a rich, we had a rich country that actually was used to shopping a lot of, right? The, the upper class in Venezuela were used to going shopping over the weekend to Miami. With Chavez and with the, the Chavista governments, right? 
which are Chavez and Maduro, what's been happening is they're a very intentional decision to invest the money coming in from oil, which is what we've imported for decades and decades um, and has been our Producto Interno Bruto, right? That's what what we've decided to reinvest in housing for all, education, um, on healthcare, on programs that actually put people first, right, and put people before profits. So that is a reality that even today, even with the crisis, even with uh, the mistakes of the government, even with all the criticisms you may want to mention about Venezuela and its government, the commitment and the ideology is still to invest in the people, right? To put first, okay, how, how do we import medicine and food, right? Those are, those are the priorities. Um, how do we make sure that there is uh, worker rights, right? That, that worker, that, minimum, that the minimum wage is being uh, matched to inflation in some way. It doesn't catch up because the inflation is absurd, um, but that, that's still, that is still the policy. I think that's something we need to remember about Venezuela is that who's at the center is still the most marginalized people. And who you see in the protests in Venezuela are working class people of color, are LGBT people who are proudly waving gay flags, right? Trans women who are proudly speaking about being trans and supporting the government and feeling seen, right? There are a lot of mistakes. There are a lot of things that, that can be improved and yet, that is the reality that you see, which is not what you see in um, the protests from the opposition, right? What you see is celebration of Netanyahu, celebration of the United States flag. What you see is a lot of light-skinned people. You can really see a stark difference between, between um, the two groups. And another thing that we need to remember and understand is there have been more elections than there have been years in Venezuela because there have been elections around, there have been local elections, legislative national elections, presidential executive elections. There have been so many elections throughout the years and whether people like or not like Maduro, he was elected. He was elected for, by a bigger uh, percentage than Trump was even elected. We need to be able to think about all of these details and ensure that we are not being blinded by images in the, in the media. Carolina Morales, so right now, Venezuela's in the headlines. You know, we see most people say that they're like, okay, well, I'm questioning the fact that Trump is in such, feeling such urgency to destabilize Maduro gives me pause. Talk to us about some of the recent moves to try to destabilize um, Maduro and also what's happening on, what's happening and what you're hearing from people on the ground to kind of fight back. So what happened actually a few days after January 10th is that, Mike Pence posted a, a video about, about Guaido and about supporting the new uh, president of, of the parliament that had been elected by the parliament, by the National Assembly, and how he, he as, as a representative of, Mike, of Trump's administration, he would actually provide all the support and resources that he needed to be able to be successful and, and to have a transition in government. 
after after that happened, the the very next day, not even 24 hours later, Guaido, um, in the middle of a street rally, announced that he was appointing himself as president of the whole country, because they were claiming that the that the president of Venezuela was not um, had not been elected and was was basically a vacant position. All of this in the midst of tons of tweets, right, by, by Mike Pence, Marco Rubio, Trump, all of them continuing to say, yes, that they recognized Guaido as the president, and they were followed by a few um, of the neoliberal countries in Latin America, right? Countries like Colombia, that has a Plan Colombia, and that hosts over, I think, um, over three military bases, and of which we hear actually almost on a monthly basis about different atrocities that the U.S. military commits in Colombia, including raping little girls. So we we hear that. We hear countries like Colombia, like Brazil, with Bolsonaro, who's a, a homophobe, sexist, horrible military man who has been linked to assassinations of left political leaders. He also recognized uh, Guaido. We have Argentinian President Macri, who has um, eliminated subsidies around transportation and, and uh, utilities. So we basically have the worst neoliberal countries recognizing Guaido. And then we have countries like Mexico and Uruguay asking for for mediation, asking for Venezuela to be respected, and asking for self-determination, right? And so this basically sets off a series of actions by the United States to attempt to gain power forcefully in Venezuela. They go to the UN, the United Nations Security Council, in a special meeting that they requested to vote for um, basically support of the United States in um, taking over power in Venezuela, they lose. But so all of that happens, and um, and Maduro actually uh, requests to the U.S. government that they should take all of their uh, diplomats in Venezuela back to the United States, because clearly, I mean, if they're not recognizing Maduro, why should we be hosting any of this individuals? And all of our Venezuelan diplomats in the U.S. actually travel back to Venezuela. When this happens, Maduro gives people 72 hours to leave. And in about 24 or 30 hours, there are about a dozen um, people, U.S. embassy people that leave the country. They actually, there is a letter that the U.S. embassy sent to the Bolivarian police asking to be escorted to the airport. Um, They get escorted and they leave. Not everybody leaves, and so that's the next big provocation of the U.S., right? Trump says we're not going to have people come back. He doesn't acknowledge that actually some people did go back to the United States, but okay, so not all of their people came back. And they were hoping for Maduro to forcibly take people out of the embassy. Maduro basically says, okay, fine, you don't, you don't have to leave, it's okay, 
um, we can, you know, we, we can talk about, about something else. This, you know, of course, sets the federal Trump administration to look for other ways to continue um, saying, right, that there, ne they, there needs to be excuse for them to, to go in. In the meantime, you know, we, we also see great responses from the grassroots. So we see actions uh, throughout the United States in support of Venezuela and against a coup. We even here in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, we had an action in San Francisco maybe a couple weeks ago, and then a few days ago had an action in Oakland in support of, um, of Venezuelan self-determination and against the coup. We also have people like Boots Riley talking about um, how we should never support a U.S.-backed or ruling class-backed opposition and coup, and, and to really question this whole argument about people being starved in Venezuela without recognizing that U.S. sanctions um, have a, a play, a, are playing a part. And in fact, we see actually a few stories that get posted and, and published about this, right? And, and a few Congress people and, and representatives, like a local representative, Ro Khanna from San Jose, talking about um, how the U.S. sanctions must, must stop and, and how we should not be meddling um, in international policies and really worry about the problems that we have in, in the United States. And at the same time, you know, we, con we continue to see a lot of kind of talking points from the right here in the U.S. about freedom in Venezuela, about um, starvation, about saving Venezuela. Most recently, what we saw is the Lima Group, which um, it's a group of a few countries in Latin America and North America that began meeting in 2017 to ask for an exit of the Venezuelan government. So they didn't talk about let's address, you know, problems in Venezuela problems in Venezuela or try to mediate a solution to um, political and economic uh, issues in Venezuela. Instead they literally used the word exit. In the um, uh, they had a meeting in Canada uh, this past week and they actually did not allow some major um, left channel, media channels to be there, like Telesur was prohibited from attending the meeting and, and, and having coverage over it. Um, we don't really know what was decided there, but what we do know is that Peru, Colombia, Canada, the U.S., um, Argentina, Chile are all part of, of the Lima group in that they are hoping for an exit. Right? And we know that Brazil and Colombia have U.S. military bases. Oh, and Brazil is also part of the Lima Group. So this is the next step in escalating. While at the same time, Trump and Pompeo are promising to bring, quote-unquote, military aid a few days after Bolton is um, seen holding a notepad with a notation saying 5,000 troops to Venezuela, right, while, um, while in a media press conference to talk about the situation in Venezuela. So we, we see clearly that the United States wants a military intervention, wants to be in Venezuela and take power 
um, of the of the oil of the economic uh, reality in general. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we we have um, some of those um, local gems uh, like Pompeo and, and Abrams um, and Bolton talking in the media about the great benefit that U.S. intervention in Venezuela will bring to United States corporations, right, and to our economy in general. I've been speaking with Carolina Morales, who's been working around Venezuela for many years now. She's been a Solana. She has been working here in the Bay Area around solidarity efforts. And she's also spent much time on the ground in Venezuela, connecting to grassroots organizations, connecting to people working to address issues around healthcare, homophobia, issues of land rights, etc. Carolina, there are a lot of people who want to know and hear more complete and accurate coverage of what's actually happening. What do you recommend in terms of staying staying connected? One of the big things is social media is making a big difference. And I think sharing news from Venezuela analysis or from telesur.net. Folks can also follow me on Facebook, Carolina Morales. I think it's very important. We need to really counter all of the corporate media, fake news or biased one-sided news. And another thing is try to talk to your, your friends and family and take it to the street when, when possible. As days move on and, and as the United States escalates, there will be more action. So please continue to listen to La Raza Chronicles, La Onda Bajita, um, all of these great shows in KPFA that bring you more critical news. And again, follow Venezuela Analysis and Telesur for more complete news around what's going on. Carolina Morales, thank you so much for all your work and for keeping us updated on what's actually happening and giving us a more complete picture. Muchísimas gracias.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. I have on the phone with me Dr. Gloria Arjona, artist and lecturer, who is bringing her latest project, Mentiras Piadosas, Little White Lies, to the Bay Area. It focuses on the life of Frida Kahlo. Welcome to Crónicas de la Raza, Gloria. Buenas tardes, Brenda Yescas, y buenas tardes a toda a la hermosa audiencia de La Raza Chronicles. Un gusto estar con ustedes. El gusto es de nosotros. Thank you for coming. Quería hablar un poco, I want to talk about the latest project that you're bringing to the Bay Area, Mentiras Piadosas. Can you explain a little bit about what the project is about and also how the event is related to Frida Kahlo? Okay, Mentiras Piadosas, Little White Lies is a multimedia performance on the loves, um, heartbreaks, los amores y los desamores of Frida Kahlo. It's a presentation that includes uh, storytelling, images, songs, and um, some of of this music that we are going to play live, Frida actually quoted in her visual art. Frida era una visionaria en todo el sentido de la palabra. Ella estaba conectada con sus raíces, con su con la cultura popular, e incorporó en su obra visual, canciones tradicionales que las cantaremos en esta ocasión. ¿Y qué clase de canciones tocaba Frida? What kind of songs tocaba Frida? Bueno, mira, no sé tanto si tocaba. Sé que si hay, si hay una fotografía, ya que lo mencionas, hay una fotografía en que Frida está tocando la guitarra, pero no sabemos realmente, sabemos que cantaba muy bien. Pero realmente a lo que me refiero es que en, en sus pinturas ella puso letras de canciones. Entonces yo como investigadora he buscado estas canciones y las he encontrado. Y es música popular, música que la gente conoce como Cielito Lindo, El Venadito Herido. Eh, y eh, las estas canciones la, las pondré en, en escena y las cantaré yo y luego invitaré al público al que las cante conmigo. Sounds like very, very something that the audience could play around with you as an artist on stage too, right? Yes, because I mean, my, my purpose is to present an interactive, a dynamic presentation or lecture. I want the audience not only to recognize Frida, but only to learn about her life and to learn about her art. Todo mundo hablamos de Frida, qué bueno, ¿verdad? Una, una personalidad enigmática, nos llama la atención, nos gusta, pero dejamos a un lado a veces el arte eh, que ella creó, el arte que en lo que ella fue una innovadora. Eh, Frida fue discípula del gran caricaturista y, y pintor eh, José Guadalupe Posada, eh, fue una discípula indirecta, ¿verdad? Porque él había muerto cuando e ella era pequeña. Pero de todas maneras ella tomó mucho de, eh, del arte de Posada y de, la, y de la manera en que José Guadalupe Posada, que es el autor de las calaveritas que vemos en los días de muertos, eh, cómo él eh, transitaba de la música a la pintura. O sea, eh, era una obra interdisciplinaria y Frida hace lo mismo. Frida Kahlo was such an exceptional woman. She has many different facets of her life and her early childhood, uh, especially, you know, battling polio. Like, so what, what kind of stories are you going to tell in your performance? And also, 
what is the process for deciding which stories to tell about Frida? There are so many. This is a difficult question, Brenda, because there are so many things about Frida. As you say, uh, she was very uh, talented. She she was a very good writer. She was a very good uh, poet. Poet. Uh, she was, of course, a very fine artist. So it's difficult, and, and her life is so interesting. So it's difficult to to choose what to say. But since it's, uh, February is the month of uh, uh, of the amor, amor y desamor, uh, I'm going to include some of the letters she uh, addressed to uh, some of her lovers because she and Diego, they had an, an open relationship, as open as it could be. So they, they were, we, we have to understand that they were the product of the Mexican Revolution, so they wanted to to break with many social conventions. So uh, when they got married, they agreed that he was going to have his lovers and she was going to have her lovers too. So I'm reading some of these uh, letters that she wrote to, let's say, uh, the Hungarian-American photographer Nicolas Murray, and and then we're going to I'm going to read those. Some of them, because there's not too much time, of course, and we want to do many things. And then, uh, but I always, um, I'm always trying to present something that we do not know about Fria. And this goes into the title of the project called Mentiras Piadosas, Little White Lies. It talks about, I guess, the little white lies she told in her in her letters. Is that what it is, or tell us yeah, a more yeah, about like, the... yeah, like, yeah, 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 you, you, that, that's correct. Yeah. Por ejemplo, hay tuvo ella un amante catalán que se llamaba José Bartoli. Diego Rivera, aunque fuera de acuerdo con él muy open minded pero siempre le daban algo de celos, ¿verdad? Eh, creemos eso, ¿por qué? Pues porque ella, las cartas que le mandaba a él, las firmaba con el seudónimo de, de Mara. O sea, no, no ponía a Frida, sino de Mara. Entonces tenían ahí sus secretos, y esas son algunas de estas mentiras piadosas de las que hablaremos. You're bringing a different facet of Frida that I'm sure a lot of our listeners yeah, didn't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's, what I, that's what I want. Another mentirita. Eh, tiene que ver más con uh, los defectos físicos que tenía Frida. Eh, ella, como tú bien lo dijiste al principio, ella desde muy pequeña edad uh, sufrió polio y después tuvo este terrible accidente cuando tenía 18 años en el que se fracturó la, la columna vertebral en, en tres, en tres fracturas grandes y el pie derecho en 11 fracturas. Entonces, eh, eh, Frida tenía eh, en muy malas condiciones eh, la pierna derecha, tanto por la polio como por este accidente, y usaba ella muchas faldas que le venían muy bien, ¿verdad? Digo, aparte de que era parte de su identidad mexicana, usar, eh, eh, tú ya sabes, los vestidos eh, mexicanos y que llevan en agua y otra falda abajo, eh, además de ser parte de su personalidad y de su identidad como mexicana, eh, escondían eh, el defecto que ella siempre eh, trató de disimular. Entonces, esa es también otra mentirita, lo que había detrás, debajo de esas 
hermosas faldas. And you mentioned, tú dijiste in the beginning of the interview that, that you're going to incorporate something called tablo vivants. Did I say that correctly? Yes. And yes, you say correctly. Uh -huh. Great. What is this exactly? This, this is a, a theatrical technique uh, that was used in the United States uh, during the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, and consists in uh, bringing to life uh, some uh, important parts of history or some important uh, paintings. In this case, we are going to have this beautiful, amazing uh, performing Karin Guerra that looks a lot like Frida Kahlo, and you know her. <laughs> and uh, I, I we're going to bring her, and she will be representing live some of the most important self-portraits uh, of Frida Kahlo. So this creates uh, in the audience an effect that um, they will be thinking that they are in front of Frida Kahlo for a few seconds. So it's definitely a multimedia performance. Totalmente, totalmente. Incluimos vestuario, incluimos música en vivo, incluimos eh, proyección de las pinturas en el, en el proyector, e incluimos también anécdotas. I've been speaking to Dr. Gloria Arjona about her multimedia performance piece coming to La Peña Cultural Center called uh, Mentiras Piadosas, Little White Lies. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you became passionate about showcasing the story of, of Frida Kahlo. Well, I'm always being, as a, as a woman, uh, as a woman of color, I always been uh, intrigued by by women that um, that we consider ahead of their time, uh, that women that do not constrain to the limitations of their times. Uh, Frida, como a muchas de nosotras, nos fascina porque no es solamente su belleza, es uh, su personalidad y el atrevimiento que tiene para romper normas de conducta, para romper eh, todo tipo de limitaciones que se le imponían sobre todo a la mujer. Eh, Frida, Frida y Diego, como dije al principio, tenían esta relación abierta, pero Frida iba siempre un poco más allá, mientras que Diego tenía muchas eh, amantes, mujeres obviamente, Frida tenía amantes hombres y mujeres, es decir, que a ella le gustaba explorar sin importar a veces las consecuencias. There are so many things, there are so many things about Frida that uh, that's why many people uh, consider them a symbol of uh, of their of any kind of resistance or party they might have. Frida is a flag for the people with disabilities because she was a person with a lot of physical limitations herself. Uh, she had more than 30 surgeries during her short life. She only lived 46 years, and she had more than 30 surgeries. Uh, she was, she's a flag for the same-sex people. Again, she was ahead of her time. Uh, one of her lovers uh, was uh, Chabela Vargas. 
and we know that because Chabela, before dying, she wrote extensively and she gave a testimony about her relationship with Frida. Um, and, and Frida is also a pioneer for for many women after the revolution. Uh, Mexican women before the revolution could not go be in the streets. They could not do many things because they were considered locas. So Frida uh, broke all those conventions, and that's why she continues being a revolutionary symbol. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the music piece of this performance. So you mentioned that there's a couple of songs that you will be playing during the piece. Can you tell us a little bit about the songs that you will be playing? Yes. Um, actually, there are like about uh, four or five songs. Eh, las canciones que voy a estar interpretando son eh, de tres categorías relacionadas con la vida de Frida Kahlo. Primeramente, voy a cantar una canción, un corrido revolucionario que le cantaron a Frida Kahlo cuando murió. La gente acompañó, la gente acompañó el cuerpo. Frida murió un 13 de julio de 1954 y el 14 de julio de 1954 masas de gente, de gente pobre, de gente rica, de gente importante, de gente no importante, siguieron el cuerpo de el féretro de Frida y eh, como ella pidió que la incineraran, porque hasta eso tenía mucho humor, Frida antes de morir dijo, no quiero que me entierren, ya pasé toda mi vida eh, postrada en una cama, acostada en una cama, y no quiero pasar la muerte de esa manera. O sea, oh, desde luego que ella decía groserías que no voy a repetir en la radio, ¿verdad? Tal vez en vivo sí, no sé. Pero de todas maneras, la, la gente comenzó a cantar. Y una de estas canciones que le cantaron el día de su muerte fue la Adelita. On July 14, 1954, one day after her death, Frida's body was placed in the entrance hall of Palacio de Bellas Artes, attended by an honor guard. Hundreds of people came to see her, women, men, children, poor and rich, who later accompanied her to Panteón Civil de Dolores, where she was cremated. That was Frida's will. After spending all her life laying in a bed, she did not want to spend her death the same way. Frida's body was laid out on a straw petate, as had been also her wish, and rolled into the ovens. As Frida's body burned, people sang Adios mi chaparrita, the international, the national anthem, and La Delita, because Frida was a fighter, a free spirit, a soldadera. Popular entre la tropa era Delita, la mujer que el sargento idolatró. Y arriba las soldaderas. Acampados se encontraba un regimiento 
como La Bruja, La Llorona, tradicionales, que se relacionan siempre con en la vida de Frida Kahlo, eh, por, por la película de Frida, pero también porque eran canciones populares en su época. que habita en la serranía Soy un pobre venadito que habita en la serranía Como no soy tan mansito no bajo agua de día de noche poco a poquito y a tus brazos vida mía Ya tengo listo el nopal donde de cortar la tuna Tengo listo el nopal donde de cortar la tuna Como soy hombre formal no me gusta tener una Me gusta tener de dos por si se me enoja alguna Hay pies pa' que los quiero Si tengo alas pa' volar de tus lúcidos aretes Quisiera ser perla fina de tus lúcidos aretes Pa' besarte en la orejita y morderte lo 
los cachetes quien te manda a ser bonita si esto a mí me compromete ya con esta me despido pero pronto doy la vuelta ya con esta me despido pero pronto doy la vuelta nada más que me libre Dios de que hay mamá por Dios pero salen a la puerta Tell our listeners where they could hear a little bit more about you and your work that you do do you have a website or Facebook page Okay, I invite all the listeners los invito a todos a que me visiten en mi página de Facebook eh, estoy bajo Gloria Arjona Arjona como eh, el cantante guatemalteco, siempre me preguntan si estoy relacionada con él y yo digo que sí, <ríe> además que es muy bueno. Pero bueno, soy Gloria Arjona, please visit uh, my page, Gloria Arjona, A-R-J-O-N-A, and uh, you can see all the programs I frequently deliver in uh, libraries, or any other cultural venues, not only on Frida Kahlo, but on other themes like the African roots in Mexico or uh, the role of women during the Mexican Revolution. Tengo muchos temas porque hay mucho que estudiar y hay mucho que decir de lo que no han dicho los libros de historia. And also, you're going to be playing a show this week on Saturday, am I right? Yes, uh, it's uh, next weekend. Actually, it will be in February the 16th. Con motivo del amor y del desamor, otra vez, vamos a, eh, no solamente yo, sino mi compañera Karin Guerra y nuestros respectivos compañeros, vamos a ser cuatro, vamos a estarnos presentando en este hermoso espacio que es la Peña Cultural Center, que está en el 3105 Shatuck Avenue en Berkeley. Eh, hay dos shows, pero shows a las 7 y a las 9 hasta donde yo sé el de las 7 ya está sold out así que amigos no lo duden este será esta será una experiencia si quieren eh, tener una experiencia diferente aprender algo eh, en el día del amor o en el mes del amor pues acompáñenos el 16 de febrero en la Peña Cultural Center los boletos están en línea well, thank you, Gloria Arjona, for being on the show with me tonight and talking a little bit about a little bit about Frida Kahlo's life and also about your multimedia performance piece that will be playing at the Peña Cultural Center this upcoming week. Muchas gracias a ti, Brenda, y muchos saludos para toda tu audiencia de La Raza Chronicles. This is the La Raza Chronicles calendar of upcoming events. On Friday, February 15th, La Peña will be having a night of Son Jarocho. You can join in with dancing, zapateado, música, and bring your own instruments and dancing shoes. Just come by to enjoy the fun or join in. On Saturday, February 16th, also at La Peña, back by popular demand, they've added a second show, Mentiras Piadosas, 
Little White Lies, Frida Kahlo's Loves and Heartbreaks. The show is primarily in English with songs in Spanish, featuring Dr. Gloria Arajona and Karen Guerra. Wondering how to educate your beloved child on Wednesday, February 20th from 7 to 9 at the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco, you will see the film La Educación Prohibida. This important movie documents diverse alternative education practices in unconventional schools in Latin America and Spain and includes educational approaches to popular education such as Montessori, progressive education, Waldorf, and homeschooling. That's Wednesday, February 20th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Mission Cultural Center in San Francisco. On February 16th, the art show, Keeping Families Together, will be at Galeria Besos Maya, which is 3224 Fruitvale Avenue. La Raza Chronicles would also like to make this important announcement about a Mission District institution. After 23 years in the Mission District, the landmark Latino cultural store Casa Bonapac is closing on Monday, February 18th. A legacy business dedicated to fair trade imports and the preservation of Latino traditions, owner Nancy Tarraga has a background as a community activist and former Spanish news reporter for KPFA. The store has a political lean and is famous for their infamous Donald Trump piñatas, among other things. We'd like to share the statement from the owner, Nancy Tarraga. With sadness, I share that our retail store in Valencia will be closed on Monday, February 18th. Given the current climate of gentrification in the Mission District, given the current climate of gentrification in the Mission District, given the current climate of gentrification in the Mission District, closing a legacy store at a great location and with a wonderful landlord was an extremely difficult decision that came from a need for a personal change in lifestyle. Casa Bonampak has always functioned as more than a business. It has been part of the cultural community and a community center and I'm unable to dedicate the complete attention and effort that it requires as my spirit calls to simplify and spend more time with familia. Unfortunately, the right energy to continue the cultural work did not manifest as I attempted to find someone or a group earlier this year that I could pass the cultural torch to. Casa Bonampak focuses on fair trade imports, working directly with indigenous artisans and communities. As I'm liquidating inventory, many unique one-of-a-kind treasures that I've hand-carried back from over the years are available. I feel a great responsibility to find these beautiful things good homes where they will be appreciated. Some of these products include Amazonian jewelry and spears made by the Tembe tribe of Brazil or or the Quichua of Ecuador, both rainforest people fighting oil exploration on their ancestral lands. Also Guatemalan textiles and children's clothing that go to benefit the foundation Maya traditions, which works with impoverished Mayan weavers. In addition, I have many rare books, rare out-of-print books about Mayan, Aztec archaeology, Mexican cultural traditions, and literature or revolutionary topics like the Zapatista movement in Chiapas that I was deeply involved with. Casa Bonenbach's last day is Monday, February 18th. The address is 1051 Valencia Street between 21st and 22nd, and the phone number is 415-642-4079. That's 415-462-4079. Their website is mexevents.com. This has been a list of announcements and events from Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles. If you have any events that you'd like to send our way, please email us at lajazachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Buenas noches. Oh, my God.
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook, at La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at lajazachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.